Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Joe, what did you set out to find out? What did you want to answer in this article? I see the story as... California is a laboratory of the Democratic Party, and that within that the Democratic Party, there is a lot of debate and conflict right now. It's in the Diane Feinstein uh, race. It's uh, down to the you know to the city council level in Los Angeles. There's progressives who see that problems need to be solved this way, deal with income inequality. Because if you don't deal with the disparity in income equality and the housing situation, you're never going to deal with the other things, the homelessness and the crime. And then there's people coming from the other direction. Nancy Pelosi, one of them, is like, safety is a huge concern. She sees crime in the polling going up. She sees what happened in New York State when, you know, Democrats lost some seats that they didn't need to lose because of they dropped the ball on crime. So they're thinking very politically about it from a centrist point of view. And I was interested in that debate and in that conversation, which I kept running into every place I went from a dinner party to, you know, taking a tour of Skid Row with Rick Caruso. That's Joe Haken, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. His latest feature for the magazine is titled, Can Anyone Fix California? And we're also joined here by Marisa Lagos, a government and politics correspondent for KQED in San Francisco. She's also the co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast. So she's our California insider. Joe and I are the outsiders. I'm Brian Stelter. And yes, welcome here to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. We're talking about California's reputation as the most progressive and innovative state in the country and how that squares with the increasingly dire headlines almost every day about epic homelessness, rising crime, not to mention the fires, floods, and earthquakes. So, Marisa, you're a political reporter based in California. Uh, how do you react to how Joe's describing the story and, and his uh, his um, interest in the story? Well, I'm also a lifelong Californian, so I should say that. This is like an entire genre of national media, uh, and it's not unique to this moment, right? I mean, I would say about every decade, we have headlines. Joe's is a little bit more, I would say, uh, Thoughtful, but I, I remember coming in uh, at the end of Arnold Schwarzenegger's term as governor when we were facing huge budget deficits, and there were headlines in the New York Times and all the national media: "Is California a failed state?" Ten years before that, we had the energy crisis and the recall of uh, Gray Davis and rolling blackouts, and there was kind of a similar question. So. I think it's true. I think that California really uh, occupies an interesting spot, uh, particularly for um, the center of power on the East Coast, for both the media, but also for policymakers. Um, I think we are both kind of loved and hated. We are kind of looked at askance as crazy, uh, but also obviously a huge tourist destination, a huge kind of economic driver. Uh, You know, our governor likes to talk about the fact that if we were our own country, we would be, I think, 
seventh or eighth largest economy in the world. Well, and yes, and if you think about California as its own country, that just the, the number of stories are endless. Think about even just right now, Gavin Newsom, the governor versus the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, which we can talk about a little bit later. There's this endless fount of stories. Do you feel like it's, um, it's fair the kind of scrutiny and envy and curiosity that California gets from other states or from the East Coast in particular? <laughs> I think what can be frustrating living here is a sense that we are somehow out of, how do I say this? A sense that we are somehow in a different place than everybody else because all of the issues, and Joe alluded to this, but all of the issues that we're talking about here inflict the entire nation. They may be heightened here. They might be more extreme, particularly in our urban areas. But when you talk about fentanyl use, homelessness, housing crisis, inequality, climate change causing, you know, all kinds of natural disasters, pick another state. You can find that anywhere. We are a microcosm of this nation. And if you look around our state, you can really find everything you want to talk about in America here. Yes, we have the coastal liberal elite sort of wealthy cities with, you know, progressives in charge. But if you go up to Shasta County, I mean, that's the most MAGA place in America, arguably, right? If you go uh, to the, you know, Central Valley, we have farmland um, and all, you know, of the sort of complication that ensues there in terms of a huge Latino population that doesn't have a ton of political power. That's all to say, Brian, that yes, I think it can be frustrating. I was laughing a a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times had a big story, mostly about crime stuff, but kind of asking a similar question. And it was uh, a weekend where my kids were playing soccer and trying out for soccer. And I literally heard in every park I went to people talking about the story, rolling their eyes, going, oh, another national story about how terrible it is as they looked around at the 70 degree weather in May and said, look, it's it's awful, right? I mean, you know, I mean, literally last year I was in the newsroom here at KQED and there was a Chiron on Fox News that said, is San Francisco hell on earth? So I think we all have to have a sense of humor about all of this because the stories aren't going to stop. Right. Oh, well, the Fox office is in a whole other league. Joe, a lot of what you wrote about made me want to move to California. Uh, well, it's funny because I was uh, staying in Mill Valley uh, while doing some of reporting, staying with my brother-in-law. and. Uh, that weekend I was there, one of those stories came out. It was in the New York Times about how the downtown San Francisco is empty. It's a ghost town, right? And my brother-in-law would just threw the paper across the room. You know, he was pissed off because, you know, Californians naturally, and I think, you know, completely justified, they're defensive about this. Who wants to have their state kind of held up like this and caricatured in different ways by outsiders? I get that. And believe me, I've heard all about it on Twitter over the last 24 hours. Oh, there's been strong reactions to your piece. That's why I love it. Yeah, I've been uh, like a can kicked up and down Twitter, which is great. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I will say You're that- You're in good uh, company, Joe. You're in good company. So, Joe, how did you right. try to approach this? You talked about sure. going and speaking with lots of folks, including, you know, rich and famous celebs in, in LA. Yep. And So, how did you try to get a grasp on a story this giant? Well, I knew it was not possible, right? Unless I'm going to write a book, right? And spend- uh, you know, a couple of years traipsing up and down the uh, the state. Uh, so what I really wanted to do was get an impression of the state through the conversations that you could have with people, whether in a dinner party or on the street, you name it. Uh, you know, the first story that piqued my interest in all of this, which was an unusual story, which was the the killing of a young Latino man, Daniel Hernandez, by a Instagram influencer who happened to be an LAPD cop. And I remember seeing an image of her 
shooting these sort of machine guns on Instagram and just going, God, California, wow, you know, what's going on out there? And so I just dug around in that story and it had tentacles in so many different aspects of the story of California. It, it went to crime, it went to race relations, it went to like the effects of BLM on LA, on even to homelessness and income inequality. Because when you talk about policing, you're talking about, uh, you know, it touches on income equality. So I began to trace that story and I realized, you know, if I could just find a handful of these stories, I'm talking about, you know, uh, somebody I met in the Central Valley who ran a hot spring, you know, she was saying to me, hey, we're starting to see homeless people from San Francisco out here. And I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So even How out there- How can that be true though? Everybody thinks they're all coming here from right. elsewhere and everybody else thinks they're coming there from elsewhere. Right. Anyway. A well, I think they're coming from all over the place and people are everywhere. But uh, in any event, um, <laughs> you know, like I said, uh, it's an inexact science, but I know what I didn't want to do was take a partisan view or take an essayistic theme and try to prove it and prosecute a case because I don't, I feel like that's, and, and, and Brian, I think you would appreciate this on some level is that our current media environment is all that, right? It's just people taking on an opinion, throwing it out there and letting everybody like rip it apart or mm -hmm. agree with it or whatever. And I kind of wanted to get a spectrum of points of view in the piece. Yeah. That's why you have, yeah. you know, a, a Rick Caruso in the center, you have progressives, and people at varying places in it. And even the people at the gun range who are all basically MAGA people, yeah. uh, you know, and pro-police and so forth, you know, I wanted to get their point of view. And I mean, there's this Taryn Butler character who's sort of a comical weird weirdo, at, you know, running a gun range in, in Simi Valley. But he was saying, you know, uh, he's trying to explain why people are buying guns and why they'd be interested in having them in home defense. Now, his vision of the city may be caricatured by his own fears and interests in guns. But he's pro-cop and he's saying, hey, cops don't want to deal with the city anymore and they're afraid to even show up for fear that they're going to lose their job or screw up. And, you know, now, is he right? I don't know, but at least I got the expression of that point of view and I wanted it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the more voices, the more complicated the story, the more interesting the story. Yeah. Um, Marisa, you've written quite a bit about crime, about safety. Do you, do you think Joe is right when he when he says in the piece that it's all this battle over perception, right? That the yeah. crime in California is a perception battle? Yeah. I want to like level set one thing, which is to say, I mean, Joe is right in the sense and, and all of the national media is right in the sense that a lot of what is happening here, which again is not a unique to California problem, but is definitely more extreme here is not okay. Right. Like if you walk through San Francisco's tenderloin and see the way people are behaving on the street, the drug use, just I mean, it's it's depressing and it's awful. And like I am raising my kids here. So that is not something that I think anybody on the political spectrum should say is just like it, it's fine. I think the question becomes like. Yeah. What does that mean? Does that actually mean that I am at risk as a person in this city? Does it mean that I am at risk in my home and that I need to arm myself? Um, no. I mean, if you look at the, the the crime numbers, violent crime is actually not the biggest issue. Property crime in a city like San Francisco has had you know some big spikes, especially during the pandemic. And we've seen, again, these kind of national trends of big retail theft rings and just drug use sort of fueling a lot of this type of shoplifting behavior and things like that. But I do think that a lot of, especially when we want to talk about crime and street behavior, like that conversation 
has been fueled by an internal debate within California about criminal justice policy, about whether we went too far kind of during the 80s and 90s. California ended up under a Supreme Court order to let you know, to decrease our prison population because they were so overcrowded. And that resulted in some really big changes, most of which law enforcement hated. And I I would argue has worked over the last decade to undermine on purpose. They did not like that we moved a lot of drug and um, minor kind of property crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. And so you have police all over the state who will tell you, I don't bother to arrest for those things because they're not going to get prosecuted. That's not actually the role of a cop. They're supposed to come and respond to crime and enforce the laws on the books. A misdemeanor is a law on the books, whether or not you Mm -hmm. agree with the punishment. And so, I mean, again, none of this we can solve in an hour. um, But I do think, to Joe's point, this is a very kind of layered debate. and. A lot of it has been exacerbated by what happened during the pandemic, especially in cities like San Francisco and L.A. with downtowns really clearing out and just this inability to kind of create, I think, that that, you know, sense of community and space in places like that. I mean, the irony is if you go to the neighborhoods we all live in in these cities, they're popping, right? (laughs) Like there is a shift that's happened. And I think a lot of what we're looking at when it comes to those types of questions around, you know, this doom loop that everybody likes to talk about in a city like San Francisco that we had, you know, commercial real estate is not coming back. And so what does that do to the tax base? And then how do we respond to these bigger problems like, you know, drug use and homelessness? These are serious problems, but they're not uh, necessarily only the result of California's progressive policies. Some of them are the result of kind of backlash to those policies. Like if we want to talk about homelessness and housing prices here, you have to go all the way back to 1978 and the first time Jerry Brown was governor. And the people, after some huge budget surpluses and some kind of... um, a lot of anger over the way that state government was handling money and and how inflation was impacting things like uh, property taxes put into our state constitution a proposition that limits very severely how much increases you can have in property taxes. And what has that done? It means that people in my parents' generation are sitting pretty, owning multiple houses, still paying tax rates that are 40 years old, while people in my generation literally can't buy a home here unless somebody dies and gives them a bunch of money. Right? right. So these are things that are like entrenched, that are decades old, that I think are coming home to roost in a way, but are not all actually the result of progressive policies. That was a right-wing tax revolt that has really become this third rail in California because who wants to pay more in property taxes, right? That's right. And then once people become property owners, they kind of side with 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 the folks that they had been looking at askance last year. And I think, again, this is getting into the weeds, but we do have a very strong direct democracy process in California. And often that actually ends up tying the hands of policymakers, not giving them more power. Right. I'm loving the weeds. Joe? Yeah, well, I heard a lot about what she's talking about while I was out there, the proposition system they have out there, which has been sort of like corporatized in a way that can have negative results. Um, But, you know, what she's also alluding to is this sort of classic NIMBY, YIMBY, you know, conflict, the not in my backyard, you know. People who are, you know, listen, I own this very expensive property, which has become even more valuable as the, uh, you know, home 
uh, prices skyrocket. So why on earth would I want to have affordable housing built anywhere near me? Uh, you know, this has become the issue, right? The the counties north of San Francisco are very well known for that type of NIMBYism. And right. yeah, it's, uh, it's created a problem where, you know, a home costs a million dollars. That's right. Period. Well, and right, and that's that's in my piece. I have the stand-up comedian Shang Wang weighing in on this because he has a whole bit about it in his stand-up, which is like, mm. I'm a 42-year-old Taiwanese stand-up comedian. Why are they giving me a loan for a million dollars to buy a house? That's actually, with interest, going to be $2 million, uh, you know, because that's what a house costs in Los Angeles, California, entry level, <laughs> right? I mean, that's another thing I learned just looking at the numbers in San Francisco, by the way, is this you know, what low income housing is like something like $2,500 a month or some ridiculous sum that out East seems like shock, sticker shock, right? But mm. uh, so people are getting priced out. And so what happens as a result, people move way out and they have to live two hours from their job in some cases, or, uh, you know, even in a worst case scenarios, they they become uh, unhoused people themselves, right? Which is why the progressive left says, uh, listen, you can't call them homeless uh, if you don't have any available homes, right? They're unhoused people. I also think we need to differentiate between street behavior and homelessness because something like 80% of those folks without homes in California are, are not visible. They are living on couches, in cars, in uncomfortable situations. Many of the people you might see in a city like San Francisco using drugs are not necessarily homeless. They are acting as though they are homeless. And I think that also makes the whole problem a bigger challenge to solve because we are not really talking about one thing. We're talking about overlapping concentric circles, right? Mm. Inequality, drug use, crime, poverty. Like it's not it's not so simple that you could just say, well, if we just gave everybody a house, like there wouldn't be a fentanyl problem. I mean, again, opioids are a national, international issue, really. And I've been talking to a lot of experts and I don't think anybody has a very good idea of how to deal with that. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm really enjoying listening to this because it's the polar opposite of what I get on social media when I see conversations about California, right? Uh, when when I see uh, Elon Musk tweeting about San Francisco, right, and disparaging the city, I want to get so protective. I want to get defensive. As an outsider, I say this as a guy that lives on the East Coast, I find myself wanting to defend San Francisco, right? So last time I'm there, I'm purposely going out of my way to walk through different neighborhoods to get a feel, right? How, how, how are things? You know, all you see in some corners of the media. You mentioned the Fox News banners. Is it, It's a hellhole. So I come away feeling like, you know what? Okay, this feels safer than I imagined based on what I perceived from partisan media, right? But then at the same time, I don't want to seem like I'm putting my head in the sand. Joe, did you feel any of this on your journeys? Sure. I mean, there were so many contradictions, <laughs> both in what I was- Contradictions. Yeah, right. see, what right. things I was seeing and 
and observing and, and my feelings about them. But that's California. And a lot of people tell me this. They're like, well, you know what? We have all these problems, but look at that. And when I look at that, <laughs> when I walk out my front door into an orange grove or whatever it is, you know, I know it's worth it. Right. So there's right. a cost benefit analysis that Californians take into, take into account. It's not least with the climate situation. Right. Mary Nichols, who's sort of an environmental lawyer that I interviewed in the piece, she says, you know, disaster is a way of life in California and it always has been, you know, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at it because in our news cycle, which is, has a short attention span, we're like, oh my God, now California is really screwed now. But no, it's always, that's why I put in the little bit about Johnny Carson and David Letterman in the piece because this has been going on for so long. And I loved that quote, John. Letterman. Letterman says, how are things going out there in California? To which Carson says, uh, well, you know, pretty good. The mudslides are putting out the fires. That's California, right? Dickensian, I believe, is the yeah, uh, yeah. the vibe you get in some of these cities, right? Like <laughs> Absolutely. High highs and low lows, both on the yeah. income, you know, right? The, ah. the wealth here when you mm-hmm. talk about the Elon Musks of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and since you brought him up, uh, I, I have... <sighs> Oh, this is going to be good. You're sighing as you <laughs> well, prepare to you know, speak. Yeah. So, so I moved to San Francisco straight out of college uh, almost 20 years ago. And one thing that always struck me pre-pandemic as the tech boom really took hold, you know, we've had multiple waves of it, but the last decade or so is the way a lot of these tech companies kind of set up their workers was to provide them a bus an air-conditioned, lovely, you know, high-end bus that would drive them to a campus where they could eat their breakfast, lunch, and dinner, do their laundry, work out, play ping pong, drink beer, do their jobs, right? And then come back on that bus. And I think that when you create an entire industry that largely has zero stake in the community that it is part of, it's not surprising that when things go sideways, they all bail. So when you saw this exodus during COVID of, you know, a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who I would argue didn't kind of put down the same roots that those of us who moved to a city, you know, probably like a lot of people like you guys moved to New York and maybe you were freelancing, but you had to wait tables on the side or maybe you were, you know nannying or, you know, doing all these jobs that I think really help people kind of create a sense of place and community. Um, It does not surprise me then that you have people like Musk sort of like throwing up their hands when things don't look as lovely as they might have and and, and kind of cutting bait and running. And so I do think that there's some space within tech to kind of self-reflect about whether they truly invested in the communities that they were part of mm, and whether they might be part of the problem here when we talk about the challenges we're facing. I talked to uh, Brittany Nichols, who's a TV writer and a progressive in LA. You know, They want to really go at those structural issues that have locked this income equality into California. You know, they mm. want to undercut that stuff and they're very strong about it. I was really impressed and maybe I'm not spending enough time in like far left progressive circles, but it was really interesting to see like, you know, we look, we hear somebody like them saying, I want to defund the police, get rid of the police, get rid of the prison system because they see them as racist and call homeless people unhoused and really have all these things that seem exotic to maybe mainstream people. And they're like, oh my God, this is the socialist coming for us. and We're terrified like they are in Florida or whatever. But, um, you know, <laughs> but at the same time, if I think of them simply as critics, 
right? Maybe their politics don't have a lot of traction now, but but I think their critical point of view is correct, that they're looking at the income equality and the racial disparities that are a part of that income equality. And there's a critique there that has to be contended with. And I think that's why they're having probably more traction in California than elsewhere. And their voice is one that people like Nancy Pelosi are now having to contend with, right? And she right. has to herd these cats, but she, in, in, in Congress, right? And she wants to vaguely dismiss them as just social media, uh, you know, uh, nuts or whatever, but- Rabble rousers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But you need some rabble rousing. And the Democrat Party has always had versions of this. But anyway, go ahead, Maurice. I can see you're ready to. Um, <laughs> and, then, you know, I mean, Joe has a good point about, you know, our structure here. I mean, some of it, as I mentioned, would have to go before voters to be changed. But, you know, part of the boom and bust cycle of California from a budget perspective, uh, public budget is based on our progressive tax structure. We heavily rely on the wealthiest Californians for most of our money, for income and capital gains taxes, which means when times are good, the state is sitting pretty and is flush with cash and can spend a lot of money on social programs and, and on schools and things. And when the economy contracts, the state budget is the first to get hit. It's really sort of heightened a lot of these challenges because when do people need the safety net the most It's when the economy contracts, right? right. And so Mm -hmm. some of this is really systemic and, you know, it's not as if the state is going to turn around and change that progressive tax structure. I think what the last couple of governors have tried to do is kind of smooth that out. So you spend, you know, money that you know may not come back next year on one-time expenditures. It's a challenging system. And I think, in order to, you know, do what a lot of the progressives just talking about would like to do, let's take, you know, healthcare, Medicare for all kind of thing. You would have to blow up our entire private insurance system. And that's something that, you know, even the Gavin Newsom's of the world are not willing to do. Um, I mean, it's funny hearing us talk about Nancy Pelosi as this like moderate Democrat, right? Because (laughs) that's not how she's viewed nationally. I know. That's what I was so surprised by. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and and to be truthful, I mean, you also have that line about her advising the homeless people in front of her house to carry signs so they don't get arrested, right? Because they'll yeah. be protesting. I mean, yeah. she's not, I think, I think she, along with a lot of um, the Democratic kind of superstar leaders in this state are really trying to strike a middle ground that makes them nationally palatable, but still speaks to where they came from, which is a pretty progressive liberal kind of point of view. So that brings us to Newsom and DeSantis in 2024. Marisa, what do you make of of this strategy? Uh, He's building California as the true freedom state, trying to pick fights with DeSantis, going on Sean Hannity's show. Where's this story going to be in a year? Well, unless something dramatic happens, I think Newsom will still be in the governor's mansion, so to speak, um, just kind of throwing bombs from afar. Uh, you mean not running for president officially? Not, no, I don't. I don't think unless unless something were to happen to Biden, he's not going to challenge him. That's my that's my point of view. Um, but I mean, what does he have to lose? He's getting national attention. He is becoming 
you know, this force on the left that I think a lot of people nationally are hungry for. He's kind of taken the fight right. to the right, to the MAGA folks. And I think that's something that a lot of Democrats, not just in California, have been kind of hungry to see. And in the meantime, he is raising his national profile, right? And so mm-hmm. whenever he does run, whatever he runs for, people are going to know him. And, you know, I think it's true. I think in both states, a lot of what happens in the halls of power and schools and community rooms is kind of the other one's worst nightmare. Like it's not, it's not just all on paper. These are very different views of how we should run a society. Um, And I just think that the fact that you have two people who are very eager to kind of bring that to the national consciousness um, means that they're going to continue to be each other's foils for a while, regardless of what happens in 2024. Right. I mean, I agree with everything she just said. And just, you know, let's take into account also he's good looking and he's not 100 years old. So like that's already he knows that he's got an edge right off the bat. Uh, But, you know, part of my question going to California, by the way, to, you know, one of the genesis ideas of my piece was thinking, wow, he's he's really going out on the national stage uh, with a lot of chutzpah. What but the report card, you don't want to look at that too closely. Right. Because uh, is maybe he's selling something he doesn't have. You know what I mean? So because you go out there and you're like, is this what you're selling? I mean, the tenderloin, the conflicts that I'm talking about in this story at the same time. And and I wanted to bring this up uh, before we go on this podcast, which, yes, California is at the uh, bleeding edge of our issues nationally problems, but also in the vanguard of our possible solutions. It is a laboratory. And and that's what makes it great. And the conflicts between Democrats are a conflict over how we progress, right, as Mm -hmm. a country and as a state. That's why I was so fascinated with this Urban Alchemy Group, who are a very imperfect organization. But I was surprised to find them there. And in the story, I described this sort of incident in which our photographer, who I was with, was sort of accosted by somebody on the street who got up in his face and was screaming at him and really scaring him. And somebody from this group, Urban Alchemy, interceded and helped us. And it turns they're, out- They're it's basically a, guard, guardian angels. They're right? guardian angels. It's a nonprofit organization contracted by the city of San Francisco, which is employed largely by formerly incarcerated people. So you have these guys who are have, you know, some of them very recently in prison for murder and all kinds of things, but now they are in a new role trying to kind of monitor these homeless encampments that police feel they're, uh, you know, overmaxed and can't deal with any longer. Now, you could argue all kinds of ways about that. And in California, it's a very controversial thing. People have very strong feelings about, is this a good thing? But it's spreading. And we talk about how California is at the vanguard of things. This same group has now been contracted in Austin, in you know, places in Arizona, in Portland, Oregon. It's going places because in all these other cities, people are looking and saying, yeah, our police forces are beleaguered. They're undermanned. They don't want to deal with this stuff. Maybe there's another way. In California, you know, the subtitle of California as a state is maybe there's another way, right? <laughs> so that's, what, that's the beauty of California. Hmm. Marisa, you think so too? Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, uh, as Joe was talking about, um, you know, a lot of the folks who are in leadership positions in California, particularly Latinos, are folks who were in high school and college when the state passed Proposition 187. This was under former Governor Pete Wilson, and it was 
really, I think you could sort of see it as like California's uh, wall debate, right? Uh, border wall debate, where there was a lot of racial tensions and anger over a sense that undocumented immigrants were taking jobs and some right-wing groups passed a measure that would have taken away all public services, schools, hospitals, um, from if you were undocumented. Um, It never was implemented because the court stopped it as unconstitutional. But this is something that really galvanized an entire generation of folks who have now become, you know, our lawmakers, our statewide leaders, Senator Alex Padilla was one of those people. And so I do think that when you look at that and you look at the kind of demographic shifts in California, there is some truth to this idea that like we are kind of on the cusp of where the nation is going. It's always helpful to look back in history. And I think looking a lot of the problems that California faced over my lifetime, we could face again if, you know, when we talk about prisons and overcrowding and and some of these issues, if we don't heed the lessons of the last 30 years. So I think (laughs) probably we're going to keep getting national attention and, um, and we'll keep fighting amongst ourselves because as I said before, we really are emblematic of everything about the U.S., both the cohesion and the fissures, right? Yeah. Just to put a uh, final uh, sort of thought on what she was just saying, you know, to go to 20,000 feet here, the, the, a perennial interest in California dating back to Mark Twain and even before, you know, of people coming out and scribes saying, well, what's what's going on out there? What's it look like? What's, what's the story? You know, California represents manifest destiny of the nation. It's the West. It's the final frontier. It's where we keep progressing. We can't keep going on the land, but we can keep going in our progressive ideals and our ways of advancing the society. And so people look to it to say, well, How's that working out, right? And there's some level at which it represents the health of our nation. Joe, Marisa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was the Vanity Fair's Joe Hagan and Marisa Lagos, co-hosts of KQED's Political Breakdown podcast. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. And we had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and mixing by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. Email me anytime, bstelter at gmail.com, and let us know what you want to hear on future episodes. We will be back with more Inside the Hive in your podcast feed next week. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.